Today on The Exam Room. When we look at nutritional stress, we understand nutritional stress as foods that are harmful, disease-forming foods, but it's also the absence of health-promoting foods, right? So health is more than just the absence of disease. It's so much more in terms of all our, our overall well-being. And when I look at nutritional stress, there's multiple levels and layers to it. One, we understand there's growing evidence that tells us that as a result of the impact of the foods we eat, it either lays the foundation for us to be more predisposed towards certain stressors, depression, anxiety, from some of these highly palatable foods and ultra processed. So on a psychological level, we understand there's a relationship that's there that begets stress as we consume these fast food products and these highly refined products. But we also understand that on a cellular level, it increases this concept of oxidative stress. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks for joining us as we raise health IQs coast to coast and around the world in great cities like Modesto, California, Providence, Rhode Island, and Maputo, Mozambique. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 14 of season 7, number 513 overall. A new book is on the way, my friends. It's called Selfish, A Cardiologist's Guide to Healing a Broken Heart. And the author is a friend of the show and an extraordinary cardiologist. Dr. Columbus Batiste is back with us on the exam room today. And you're going to hear the word stress come up quite a bit during our conversation. It's actually a common theme throughout the book. And maybe for the first time, you'll hear the term nutritional stress, nutritional stress. So Dr. Batiste is going to explain what that is and how it applies to you and how it's impacting your health. But then also to help balance out that stress, you're going to hear the term nutritional resiliency. That's a fun one. I like that. Nutritional resiliency. Also today, we're going to be getting into cooking techniques and how they can affect the amount of stress that food can put on your body. So think of it like this. Is the stress that comes from a grilled steak the same as what grilled vegetables can bring to the table? Well, we're going to get the cardiologist's take on that, plus his motivation for healing patients and hyper-palatable ultra-processed foods, the effect that they can have on the heart, plus Dr. Batiste's affinity for superheroes. And I love this part of the conversation because, believe it or not, we all share some similarities with the Peter Parkers and Bruce Waynes of the world. Are we really superheroes or just ordinary individuals capable of doing super things? Well, we're going to talk about that and get that answer and a ton more with Dr. Batiste. Plus, our friend Carly Bodrug from Plant U is here. She's got another installment of 5-4. This time, five ways for saving you money eating a plant-based diet. And they say it can't be done. So much to get into. Let's get rolling. The train is pulling out of the station. And first up, it's Dr. Columbus Batiste on the exam room. Welcome back to the exam room, my friend. Oh, it's good to be here and good to see you. How are you? I'm doing great, but not nearly as good as you. The new book, we're just going to add to your accolades. Did you think at any point in your career you would become an author? Absolutely not. I mean, <laughs> there is no doubt. I mean, I think the first thing I said was, do we need another book out here? And when I had folks encouraging me, I was just like, I don't know if I need to put anything out here that's not already out here. And um, it just wasn't. So it was not inside of the cards, as they say, um, for me at all. And then things kind of shifted a little bit. It shifted. But, you know, your book is is different. And that's why I think that it is needed. And I, I'm glad that you kind of came to the same conclusion as well, because right away in this book, we saw you drop your guard and there was this vulnerability 
in literally the opening paragraphs of the book where you talk about the analogies of how Batman became Batman and Spider-Man became Spider-Man. And then you, who's this extraordinary cardiologist who is saving lives, people look at you also as a superhero, but you laid bare your soul as well and opened up your vulnerabilities and what has shaped your career because of what has happened in your personal life. Is it fair to say that you are a superhero with flaws, sir? Well, I, I think one, we can't say superhero, but you know, the reason why I use those analogies specifically, especially the Batman analogy, right? So yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a comic kind of a guy. I didn't read comic books, but I watched it as a kid growing up and the old Bruce uh, West and all those, those folks, Adam West rather and those folks. But here's the thing. He had no real power. He had no real power. He had passion. And he used the tools that he was that he was afforded to do the best he could to fight crime. This is what Batman was about. And so I'm not a superhero, but I'm using the tools that I've been given and the opportunity I've been I've been uh, placed in front of to do my best to confront this thing called chronic disease and stress and things that keep us from living our best lives ever. And that's really what I'm about. And let's talk about the events that shaped your thinking now when it comes to medicine and preventing these chronic diseases that you were talking about, because as I was alluding to, this is extraordinarily personal for you. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I've, I've spoken about it on this show with others. It's just, you know, we all have a background story, an origin story. And for me, my career path really shifted with the impact of my dad passing. And I'll tell you that that moment was, it still is something that that just, it's a deep, dark area inside of me that I realized of what I was ignorant of and the things that I perhaps could have done to change his course and where he would still be here possibly today, or at least he would have been here for years beyond when his life was uh, cut short. And so it was coming out of those moments that I realized something had to change than just the fact that I'm an interventional cardiologist. I need to intervene before the crime happened. I need to take on the mantra of Tom Cruise from the Minority Report, if any of you all remember that movie from back in the day. It was a police officer who went back in time to stop a crime before it happened and arrested the criminal. And so my feeling is as you know, as things time evolved, I started reading through patients' charts and I recognized they had this history where there were plenty of opportunities for physicians and care providers to intervene and change the, di the direction, trajectory of this person's life before they ended up at the point in when they were seeing me, either on the brink of dialysis, of having a heart attack, of having heart failure. And so I thought to myself, Columbus, what if you can go back in time and intervene as a true interventional cardiologist and provide the resources, provide the encouragement to let them know that they're worth it, that you're worthy of this, of having health, that it's a right, an inalienable right that we all should have, right? And so that's what we began the process of this. And I realized in the, as I started down this track is the fact that it's not just solely about nutrition, although this is what we, we talk about. Because if it were in isolation, then everyone, then it's like, just do it. But there are, there are certain aspects that we have to have that help support, that enable us, these keystone habits, these foundational keystones that increase the odds that we can be resilient to do the things that we want to do. So that's what this book is about. It's about, it's about peering through the veil of how you truly can achieve the best health you can and decrease that stress. Well, let's talk about some of those ways, some of those keystones, so to speak. Uh, it is definitely, uh, it takes two to tango, as they say here. So let's start with the patient perspective. How much of that onus does fall on the patient to advocate for themselves, to say, hey, doc, you know, I'm just kind of noticing these little things along the way. I want to get this checked out, as opposed to just kind of sitting back and waiting for something major to occur. How much of this falls on the patient to be proactive, doc? Well, I'm going to kick it right back at you in true form of what I like to do. So if you're concerned about someone stealing uh, a valuable item out of your house or out of your car, how much responsibility do you have to not only roll up the windows, to lock the door, to press the key, to ensure that those locks are working and to check it out periodically, right? And so when you're trying to protect your most valuable asset, which is your health, 
it's uh, it's important for you to understand how am I doing in the grand scheme of things? For me, number one, to understand what are my greatest risks that confront me? So for cardiology and for heart health, we talk about high blood pressure and diabetes and high, and, and high cholesterol, smoking, all these things, inactivity, lack of sleep. And so how can you check up on it? Knowing your numbers, what's your blood pressure? What's your weight? What's your A1C or your blood glucose level? And so you have to begin this process of advocating for yourself, even if your provider doesn't say to you, sir, ma'am, let's check this blood work. It's been two years, three years, one year. You have to say, hey, where are my numbers? How am I doing? Don't de- and then when they tell you how you're doing, don't just accept, oh, you're doing well. What does well mean to you and to them and to the standard of care? What are the numbers at? And so as you begin this process, you have to advocate for yourself and recognize that sometimes things you present differently in terms of symptoms. So if something isn't right inside of you, listen to that voice, listen to those symptoms, and you continue to go and you seek care until you can figure out what's going on. All right. Now let me uh, make like our, our mutual friend, Dr. Kim Williams, and return serve here. All right. Let me kick it back to you then from the provider perspective. How can you be more proactive? Say that the patient, you may notice on their chart that they have not had labs drawn in a year or two. You know, a lot of times I know that a doctor will just check the blood pressure, listen to the heart with the stethoscope. Oh, you're doing pretty good, Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so. Have a nice day. We'll see you whenever we see you again. What are some steps that providers should be taking in your opinion to be a little bit more proactive there? I think we have to explain the reason why this is important. So I think it's important to understand and to visualize it. Now, I'll tell you, one of the things that some studies have shown is that um, when there's imaging studies that are being done, that can identify that you actually have precursors of coronary artery disease. You may have carotid plaquing, you may have um, resistance inside the vessels that are there, uh, which means that they're not as reactive as what they should be, or that you have calcifications in the arteries of your heart. This tells us you have the beginnings of it and it puts more of an emphasis. But I would, on, on getting testing, additional lab work done, but what I would tell you is the first question I'd ask a patient is, why haven't you got this done? Is it fear that's holding you back? Is it because you're concerned that there is a problem? Is it because that you don't want to know? And so you're sticking your head inside of a, inside the sand and trying just not to, to learn about something bad. And so I would try to dig in and recognize that providers don't have a lot of time they're with you, right? So, so when they're there, they're in and they're out. But I think I will begin this process of using my ancillary staff to really make sure we can try and address what the concerns are as to why the blood work has not been done. And then I try and make it convenient. Ah, let's bring the, let's, let's, let's go down, let's get this done right now and have you come back. Uh, or, or let's do some other type of scenario in which we can get an immediate action to take hold from that patient. But that understanding of the why is key, why they have not done it, why it's important, and then what the results will mean and how it can help their life in the long term. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of a delicate balance too, though, because, you know, there's somebody in my life who I'm thinking about right now up there in age, and they just they don't even think to ask for blood work or anything like that because the whole medical part of it health is kind of a a mystery to that person and so they put 100 percent of faith in 100 percent of their care in their primary care physician other doctors that they may see and they let them do 100 percent of the steering so if somebody just doesn't even know what to ask for and is kind of flying blind in these settings probably needs a little bit of hand holding what kind of recommendations could you offer to that kind of person or even their family members to help guide them along a little bit yeah no you bring up such a wonderful point because there are different cultures interact with physicians differently, the generations interact with physicians differently. And you're absolutely right. There are some generations and some cultures who almost hold us in the state of, of, of semi-demigods, of deity, and which we absolutely are, are, are flawed individuals. And so I think it's more of a perspective of saying, even if it's asking from a standpoint of respect for that person of saying, hey, doc, is there anything else that I should know or that I should do to kind of take care of myself? How do I know that what I'm doing is really effective. 
are, you know, are there any tests that you recommend, blood work or other things? And where you're asking from a standpoint of asking a question as opposed to telling, which some individuals in different generations may feel less comfortable doing. And so as you begin to enter this conversation, it can be helpful. But I think even providing some education to all those individuals is so key so they have the knowledge. And, you know, the last analogy I'll say is, yeah, okay, I have my paycheck direct deposited into, into my bank account. Does that mean I don't have to check my bank account to make sure there's not fraudulent activities that my spending isn't getting out of sorts according that I can't cash the checks I'm writing? You have to somehow go in and, and check. Even when you're inside of financial uh, distress, you have to still take a look. And so if you're a diabetic, if you're older, you still have to check these things. We don't want to. That's why many people, you know, who, and I'll ask you, Chuck, you've made tremendous strides. Everyone knows who you are and your weight loss journey. But I'll ask you, before you became this magnificent specimen, did you love stepping on the scale? Hated it. I Absolutely yeah. hated it. Yes. And I this is what, know. yeah, this is what plagues everyone. If you're in financial straits, you don't want to check your bank account. If you're a diabetic and you know, maybe things, your stress haven't been doing things right. You don't want to check your, your uh, blood glucose or your hemoglobin A1C, or if you're hypertensive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You almost don't want to know thinking somehow it's going to protect you. Somehow everything's going to be all right, but it doesn't, does it? It doesn't change anything. No, no. And if anything, it makes it worse because you're kind of ignoring the problem. And when you do stick your head in the sand, the problem tends to get worse because you're not making the changes that need to be made ultimately. Uh, so yeah, that, that is an interesting conversation. And I think it's one uh, worth having uh, again. And, and I think that you may have hit the nail on the head with it kind of being a generational thing as well. I think the younger generation having grown up with uh, greater access to information, Google having everything literally at our fingertips to look up things makes it a lot easier than having to like get in the car, go down to the library, figure out how in the world to operate the Dewey Decimal System to get the book that you're even looking for, you know, or the microfiche, if you remember those from back in the That's day, right. having to pull That's those right. old clips, man. Right. It's just like a whole pain in the in the rear. So definitely, I think there's some generational stuff there. But I want to talk to you more about this book, Selfish, because there are two terms in there that really stuck out to me. And let's start with, we've you've mentioned stress already on a number of occasions, but then you coined a term nutritional stress. And even though you said nutrition, you know, it's it's a big part, it's not 100% of the thing, but the term nutritional stress did stick out to me here. So when it comes to that, what exactly do you mean by nutritional stress? Yeah, yeah. You know, when we look at nutritional stress, when I describe nutritional stress, I'm talking about we understand that nutrition, of course, it's eating health promoting foods, but it's also, uh, excuse me, it's also, it, we understand nutritional stress as, as um, foods that are harmful, disease forming foods, but it's also the absence of health promoting foods. Right. So so health is more than just the absence of disease. It's so much more in terms of all our, our overall well-being. And when I look at new nutritional stress, there's multiple levels and layers to it. One, we understand there's growing evidence that tells us that as a result of the impact of the foods we eat, it either lays the foundation for us to be more predisposed towards certain stressors, depression, anxiety from some of these uh uh, highly palatable foods and ultra process. So on a psychological level, we understand there's a relationship that's there that begets stress as we consume these fast food products and these highly refined products. But we also understand that on a cellular le level, it increases this concept of oxidative stress, oxidative stress. And so the way I describe oxidative stress to people is that imagine if you're in a great mood, you wake up, it's a blue sky, it's sunny day, there's not a cloud in sight, you're doing wonderfully, right? You're like, I'm gonna have a great day. I'm going to the office, I got my red tie on, I'm suited and booted, I'm ready to go. And you walk out into the office and immediately, right? Someone comes up to you and they have some derogatory comments. They look at you from head to toe that starts to make you question yourself. All of a sudden, they're stealing your joy because they themselves are joyless. Well, this is like what happens in the body. So a body in a, a cell inside of its normal uh, uh, homeostatic state, its, its healthy state, it has all of its electrons that are there. But then you have these other 
agents that come in and they're devoid and they steal the electron, they steal the joy. Now this causes cell to now uh, degrade and this is what propagates oxidative stress. Food can impact this, smoking can impact this, radiation can impact this, there's multiple things that can trigger this. And so we know at a cellular level that the foods we eat can contribute to this form of oxidative stress, this form of advanced glycation in products, which is this bond and connectivity between uh, sugars and proteins that begins to happen from high uh, fried foods. This Maillard reaction, they describe it. What Maillard is, like the browning, when you brown that gravy or you toast or your grilling marks that are there. Now you start to get all of these toxins that begin to happen that begin to impact you and stress the system on a cellular level and increase inflammation into the vessels that, as we know, then de degrades and, and uh, uh, causes endothelial dysfunction, that lying of the vessel. And then we understand that that then potentiates all the diseases from head to toe. So we understand that that stress begins this process of taking on so many levels. There was even a small, small study, right? It's not, it's not something that I would kind of hang my hat fully, but it makes you say, hmm, things that make you say, hmm. And what they did is they looked at individuals and their, their, their stress, uh, uh, salivary stress hormone levels, cortisol levels. And they found that there was a slight rise in those who ate aggressive animal products versus those who ate more plant source and fiber rich foods. So we understand that there may be some elevation in, in the cortisol that has not been replicated in multiple studies, but there are some interesting uh, small studies that really point to this. Then we understand the impact in our gut microbiome. And we're learning more and more and more about this whole intricate process, not just gut microbiome, not just the cortisol levels that can rise from foods we eat, not just the toxin effects and inflammatory effects to our arteries, but we're seeing that this whole entire connectivity as science is evolving, we're learning more and more of the why of why our food can be stressful. And so that's what fits. The reason why I came up with that is because our health equals resiliency divided by stress. And everything we do in life is either adding to our resiliency or it's adding to our stress. And as we, we can't eliminate stress in life, but if we can add more to the resiliency than we add to our stress, that's the stuff that health is made of. Yeah, you you use the term resiliency, which is the other term that stood right out to me in the book. You had them side by side. So there's nutritional stress and then nutritional resiliency. I'm assuming then the resiliency comes from, you know, the whole grains, the nuts, the legumes, the fruits, the vegetables, the healthier plant-based foods that you were mentioning. That's right. That's right. You know, fiber has so much benefit, you know. Our, our, our good friend, uh, Dr. Will, he, Dr. B, he talks about fiber, right? And so we understand really about fiber and its power. And fiber is only found in plant source foods. And so we understand that as we begin this process of getting not only our micronutrients, we're able to get in our omegas that begin to happen in our balance between omega-3 and omega-6, that these things are the stuff that resiliency is made of. I'll tell you, you know, I was just inside the cath lab. Um, and so unfortunately took care of a 44 year old man, right? Who, who went into the hospital around the cusp of, of heart health month with chest pain that had been increasing over a period of time. And so he was a bit uh, overweight. Uh, he was already pre-diabetic and hypertensive. And as we kind of sat there and, you know, he had a, what we call unstable angina, the pre precursor for a massive disease and had what I would characterize as a widowmaker disease. And given his symptoms, I did have to go in there and place a stent. And some of you listening may say, well, doc, why'd you place a stent? Because sometimes when you have a flat tire on the road, you have to change that tire and then teach <laughs> that, that driver not to drive over nails anymore. Don't back up where it says do not back up. You have to take the precautions of, of, of taking care of that vehicle. And so I did play stints in that particular instance with him. And then we had a conversation. And what's so interesting as the conversation is they primed me or I prime, or the nurses primed them that, hey, this doc is coming in with nutrition. I didn't even get a chance to, to enter in and give my little elevator pitch to lead into it. He was like, doc, what, what should I eat? Should I change? And as I went through... I told him what you should do. I said, this is like you asking me how many miles do I have to run for a marathon? It's 26.2 miles. And you may be looking at that and saying, that's too daunting. I can't run 26.2 miles. My job after teaching you that it's 26.2 miles is to lay a plan out in front of you so you're free to reach that goal successfully, right? I said, so I'm gonna tell you, the goal in my mind is a whole food plant-based diet. The goal is for you to kind of 
eliminate animal products from your 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 diet. My goal is for you to eliminate as much as possible ultra processed foods, processed foods from your diet to increase the opportunity for us to feed the body. I said, now let me tell you the reason why. And as I began to break down the power of green leafy vegetables for dietary nitrates and for fiber enrichment and micronutrients. And I moved over to legumes and seeds and, and beans and what their power is for resistant carbohydrates and, and how they can help promote and, and decrease the cholesterol and speaking about the portfolio diet briefly to him. And then I moved on to how, how um, uh, all these things, the, the berries and the antioxidants that are there that enrich the body and help fight off that oxidative stress his eyes began to open and there was a twinkle of understanding. And then I began the process of sharing with him that that's not enough just to say like, I want to do it. Knowing it's not enough, uh, you must apply. Willing is not enough, you must do. I said, okay, we're going to take a smart approach to this. We're gonna be very specific in how we're gonna go about this. We're gonna be measurable amounts and we're gonna, we're gonna inspect what we expect. Uh, we, we want it to be achievable within your confines. I'm not gonna tell you to go, go to the farm and pick it if you live in the city. It needs to be relevant, and we're going to set a time that we're going to be intentional with these efforts, and we're going to build upon it in a stepwise fashion. And so, as we, I left out of his bedside with he and his his significant other, um, you know, they seemed to be invigorated in that moment and willing to go ahead and quit backing up over nails <laughs> and over yeah. the spikes. And so, that's the stuff that 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 uh, you know that interventional cardiology should be is really intervening to prevent that future event. Because I'll tell you one thing, Chuck, is what studies still, still tell us is about roughly 25% of all the heart attacks that happen every single year are due to a second, third, and fourth heart attack. Mm. And another 20% are silent, which means you never know you're in the throes of having a heart attack. They happen without you even being aware until the final one takes you out. So these efforts that I go through to educate are even though you say, well, doc, I thought you wanted to start before a disease ever happens. That's true. That's what this is about. That's what this conversation is about. That's what the book is about. But for those who unfortunately do succumb to an event, I'm still working to prevent that future event from happening. I love the way that you laid it out for that gentleman, because 26.2 miles going from the couch to running a marathon overnight, that's just, it's not going to happen. I don't care who you are. You know, Batman and Spider-Man could not pull off that feat themselves. So when you're laying out a roadmap for a patient who's had that kind of cardiac trauma, how long of a game plan is this? Is it a three-month ramp up? Is it a six month ramp up? Is it a year long ramp up? Or is it dependent upon the patient themselves and where they're at as an individual? Yeah, I think that it ultimately depends upon the patient where you're at. And that's where this motivational interview viewing comes into play. Now, fortunately, what is ideal for patients, at least those who suffer with cardiovascular disease. And I believe there should be one for cancer. I believe there should be one for diabetes. We have cardiac rehabilitation. And so that historically is a 12 week uh, takeoff land uh, strip that's there. So you're looking at three months to get someone going. And we understand that what, 66 days roughly to make a, a sustained change. And so beginning that process of meeting and everyone's different. So for some people, it's like they wanna just, just tell me what I have to do and lay it out and I'll follow it until I get in the habit. Others are, let's take off small bite size. Let's make it achievable. Let's start with breakfast or let's start with snacks or let's start with dinner and let's begin to transform one meal at a time and let's really hone in. How can we get in the core components that are gonna be valuable, that are gonna provide you with nutritional resiliency and let's see how we can add this to our diet. We're gonna focus on what we're adding to our diet as opposed to what we're not. We're gonna have a positive mindset one is going to start with a belief system that, yes, I can. The second part is, yes, this is going to transform me. And the third part is, I'm going to focus on what I can eat for my health. It's not going to be, I can't have this. I can't have the other. I can't do this. What can I do? And so as we flip the script and we move from can't to can, all of a sudden you see your energy start to transform. You start to see a difference in your mindset. I'll never forget a patient came in and saw me and, and I, I always forget some of the conversations I have unless they're my long-standing patients. And so she goes like, Doc, yeah, you told me. I actually recorded her, but I didn't get her to sign a release. I never posted it on social media. But she was like, you know, you told me I appreciate you so much because you told me focus on what I can do as opposed to what I can't do. 
And so I, I've done that and I started dropping weight and I'm feeling better and I'm making progress. And I, I, every day I focus on, okay, I'm going to have this. I'm going, I don't tell myself I can't. And I'm and it's, it's, it's working for me. It's improving. I'm starting to squeeze out those bad things. And we understand we're on journey. I mean, we're all on journeys, uh, Chuck. You know, I mean, there's just because some people they've, they've, they've been uh, knighted and anointed and they've, they've ascended to a level in which they, they eat whole food, plant-based and nothing else at all. You still have others on that same trajectory who are in a different state of being that they actually are in a being where they're, they're, a mile or two behind him <laughs> and it's yeah. taking them a while to catch up and we have to be patient with them. Yeah. But, but it is a journey. And I do think that there should be a lot of patience and non-judgmental, especially if somebody's just getting going on their journey. Uh, I never want anybody to feel like, um, they have the right to be up on their high and mighty, you know, um, pillar and look down on everybody and say, eh, you're not doing it right. You're bad. You're wrong. Because that's so defeating. I mean, even if a person is this, like this 44 year old who just, you know, survived a heart attack and now has stints. I mean, that's, that's pretty traumatic, but you know, you just mentioned that like what one out of four heart attacks, uh, you know, are a second or, or third or heart, heart attack. So it's like, clearly a lot of people go back to their, their old ways in time. And so anything that we can do to help the person along and not discourage them, but instead encourage them, I think is really going to be key. Um, that's why I love doing this show, you know, because I, I never want anybody to feel holier than thou because of the way that they eat. I mean, that alone to me is just kind of silly. Uh, what you eat does not make the person whatsoever. It's it's how you live your life and how you help other people. But that's a show for another day, my friend. <laughs> no, nah, but you're spot on, though. You're spot on because and I'll tell you, it's that interaction with patients over the years. And I've gone down the full spectrum of, of just coming in guns blazing. Listen, we're going to go hard in the paint. This is what you got to do. And I realized over time that people need all the other aspects. And this is the stuff Selfish was born out of. They need the other components to help support and crowd the food to make it easier to be successful. And that's really the that's really the key. And that was really the driving point behind Selfish because of my interaction with patients over now 18 plus years of practice. I've seen this play out. I've seen it play out where there are more, it's much more than than food or food alone for them to be successful. Let me ask you this. One of the first things that you brought up uh, in that conversation with the gentleman also was we got to get these ultra processed, hyper palatable foods off of your plate. To what degree would you say these foods are contributing to our heart disease epidemic? The honest truth is, I think that these foods are probably contributing. I mean, we know the burden of of, of we speak a lot of times in, in on a large scale inhanes others in terms of the absence or lack of when we're not eating this we look at the overconsumption of uh we look at red meat and so and so forth i really find that the the sugar component in the ultra process i would probably say from my estimation i look at what people eat on a regular basis it's over 50 percent over 50 percent easily easily as it relates to it because it's all around us it's that every holiday that happens almost every other month. You move from uh, Christmas and New Year's into Valentine's Day. You skip over March and you're right inside of Easter celebration and spring break. And then you, you're right on the cusp of, of a Memorial Day that's right there on the tail end. And then you're hitting, you're hitting what? You're hitting Fourth of July that's right there. Then you're hitting Labor Day and back to school parties and birthday car parties all intermingled in there. And then you're hitting in back into now Halloween. And then the whole cycle begins. At least six, seven months are our national prescribed processed food eating periods of time and interspersed in there, we have our own events. I look in the in the hospital when we celebrate doctor's day or nurse's day or, or a therapist day or tech day, we look at the foods that are brought in, the hamburger trucks that are there, the barbecue trucks that are on the side as we're feeding the caregivers who are taking care of us. And we wonder why people are suffering because we're sending them to a place to get well by feeding them food that makes them sick, right? And so, there is, there is a role for free, free choice, but I also understand that if I'm coming to a particular area, <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm deciding to enter into a, uh, if I'm going to the swimming pool, I may have to wear some swimming uh, outfits when I go there. 
that I'm expecting there to be water when I go into a swimming pool, even if I don't like water. I have to expect that. When I go into a hospital, I should expect, guess what? I'm going to get foods that are going to probably, I know I don't like them, but these are foods that are going to be healthy for me because I'm coming into a hospital. I know I have a free choice. I don't have to go. I mean, you say you're not going to like them, but you know, one of the, one of the cool things is that I've learned is that these healthy foods, man, I mean, they can be extraordinarily tasty. Matter of fact, you should come to the international conference on nutrition and medicine this year, uh, in August here in Washington, DC, because we're actually doing like a healthy hospital chefs challenge where we're bringing in chefs, they have to apply to participate. But it's literally a cooking competition between hospital chefs for who can create the most delectable, the tastiest hospital meal possible that they can serve to patients. And there's like a $6,000 prize here. So we're totally game showing this thing. But at the end of the day, what we're doing is telling a story that you're not eating grass, for goodness sakes, we can help nurture you back to health and it is going to be every bit as delicious as the hamburger or the barbecue that you'd be getting off of those food trucks for national doctors or nurses day listen you're preaching to the choir with that i completely agree um i'm sitting on our healthy eating uh committee for the organization i work for um right now we've been having these conversations about things um but I also have heard the feedback. I've seen some of the complaints that have come through and I understand that I'm not preaching to the choir when I talk like this as it relates to understanding where people's perspective is. And we do have to change the system. So you're absolutely right. We can make it taste good and it can be, but we have to be committed to it. You can't be, you can't straddle the fence and be half in and half out. You have to be totally committed towards entering this phase of health in terms of using nutrition as a, as um, a tool of intervention. And once you're committed to it, I mean, that's where I did my cath lab, right? For that very reason. So the cath lab, I, you know about cath lab, that's where cooking alternative to health. I used to put on this, <laughs> this, uh, this cooking class, right? And it was my play on the cath lab and we would cook delectable foods, all nutritious, talk about the health promoting benefits of the allium family or the fiber or the beans and this, and people had a chance to taste test it. And we did that on a monthly basis along with batch cooking. And I'll tell you at that level, it was phenomenal and trying to, to but we were committed to it. And so healthcare organizations have to commit to it in order to implement this across the board on the inpatient basis and outpatient basis. For me, it's all about marketing. And I think that like, uh, and I'll just use myself as an example. If somebody were to do a poster of the old me and the me that you see today with something like, you know, that guy likes it as much as this guy and I'm holding up, you know, something that would be served on the hospital food, you know, menu. Like, I think people would get excited by that because it could be something like a burger you know, or a healthy hot dog or pizza, you know, I mean, there are healthy ways to do all of these foods that people get so excited about. Um, and I think that that would go a long way to dispel a lot of, you know, the, the stigma that's around this, the uncertainty, because I'm telling you, when I was a big guy, when I was a, let me tell you this, when I was a big guy, the barometer of how good a restaurant was, was how many other big people were eating at this restaurant. And if it was loaded with people who looked like me, I knew I was in for a treat. And so use that as the endorsement for this food, because I guarantee you, I was not the only person who used that same barometer. My whole circle of overweight friends used that as our barometer. And I think that as simplistic as that may sound, man, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it would work. It would absolutely work. Listen, I am right there with you because I'll tell you. So here's a here's the thing. We all know it's all about the flavor. When I'm eating food, it's about the flavor. It's about the spices. It's about the aroma. It's about everything because the process, the idea of eating, it's this relationship, this love. It begins with the smell. It begins with all those things that you begin the whole digestive process in advance. And, and when you make it, and I know firsthand because my mom is an incredible cook, 88 years of age, she still can throw down right now. Shout out right? mama. You know, that's right. My sister learned, they cook, as I say, by ear, right? So, you know, so the uh, pianists who can play by ear, they can just listen to a tune. They start just kind of putting it together. And all of a sudden they're right in tune with the, the singer, the singer and the songstress, right? And so you have people who can cook by ear. 
They don't need the, a recipe. They just add a little this, a little that. They're like, oh, yeah, it needs a little bit more of this spice and that spice. That's my mom. Not me. <laughs> I'm, I'm your, I can follow a recipe and I can, I can throw down with a recipe. But when it comes to actually cooking by ear, that's less of my, my uh, uh, forte. But, you know, I think that when we do this and we bring that flavor you're talking about and we make it where it is savory, where it's things that we want and the ambience are there, people are going to come because all people care about is good food. They want good food. Right. And their biases are left at the door when they start hearing seeing that smell and that aroma is and maybe they put up a little guard. The funny part was another patient I just interacted with and I was talking with him. I was like, Yeah, you know, you can throw it down with some cauliflower rice. I said, if you're wanting to kind of add a little extra cruciferous vegetables to it, he goes, Oh, doc, man, it's interesting you say that. My wife was kind of doing this, she was cooking for me. And I was like, This stuff is good, keep it coming. And then my boy came up and was like, You know what you're eating, right? He goes, Yeah, some goodness. He was like, No, 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 you're eating cauliflower rice. I said, What? And he said, Oh, sorry. Don't ever feed me that again. I looked at him and I said, really? So you just said that this was an incredibly tasting food dish and you were wanting more and more and more until you learned where it was? I know, doc. I said, come on. It's about the flavor. Because I know. I'm, I already told her, go back and, and start making me some of that again. And so we have to get over our biases as people in general, just across the board. And we have to go ahead and entertain and remember that we're feeding people um, foods that don't, that is not only nutritionist, nutrition, nutrition field for them. It's culturally relevant for them in many instances, and it's going to be about the flavor. All right. We got a couple of minutes left here. So let's uh, do a little nutrition nerddom here. Um, I want to go back and cover something that you talked about earlier in the conversation. That was Millard. So you're talking about when you're making a roux or when you're grilling something, those char marks that come on that, that, that Millard there. Uh, obviously, a lot of people like to grill tofu. They like to grill their vegetables. Uh, do we have to worry about that with a whole food, plant-based food, uh, in the same way that we would if we were grilling up a steak or a hot dog or something like that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And so the answer to that simply is no. The The level, is there an impact in terms of what's characterized as advanced glycated end products um, with tofu and at high cooking temperatures? Yeah, you will still get some of that, but at a marginal amount in comparison to animal products um, across the board. You're not getting the heterocyclic amines and, and the PHAs and things like PCAs and so forth. You're not getting those substances um, from it. And so you're much better off having getting that flavor right that you like and having the nutritious content um from the fruits the, from the vegetables that are there whether it's asparagus or whether or not it's tofu and things of that nature so i mean life is not going to be just it's very similar when we talk about process and we all recognize it but just for your audience members who may not even tofu's process even tempeh is process so it's not when we speak to the concept of process it's all contextual. You want the things that are at least touched by man that have recognizable ingredients, singular ingredients um, are the key essentials towards like achieving health, especially inside this modern society. All right. And uh, two more here for you. Um, let's start with uh, the L uh, in Selfish, which uh, the title of the book, Love. And I know that for you, again, the opening chapter is all about, you know, kind of the guilt that you feel losing your own father. Um, and I feel like healing, whether it's this or anything else, really can't begin until a person loves themselves. So when you're working with a patient, is that your way of kind of expressing self-love in a way to kind of pacify any residual guilt that you may feel because of your your father's passing man i'll tell you that's a loaded question and probably the easiest way for me to say it is that this is this journey and this trajectory towards promoting wellness and treating those who are at the greatest risk is really almost like my penance for what i was unaware of on my own to help with my dad as well as for the many others that are out there I, it's funny how your mind goes to certain conversations and certain things that have been said and i, I remember my dad um towards the, the latter end of his life kind of sitting at the table and my sister was joking with him and she was like oh why are you asking columbus anything he's like well that's because he's my son and because you know and he's a doctor and i know he's basically he's looking out for me 
right? And those, those words resonate in my mind on a daily basis. It's been since 2010 when my dad died. I still think about that, right? And it's like, he trusted me. And what did I provide in that moment? So these efforts of what I'm doing now are in his memory in part. And I don't know if I can be honest with you, if I would still even be here talking to you if my dad were alive up until here recent. I, I honestly don't know. And um, so when I look at love, love is an action word. It's not a noun. We throw it around so easily and we say, oh, I love this coffee. I love this such and such. I love that. But true love, we understand. It's an action word. It's a verb, not a noun. It's, it's something that takes action. It requires forgiveness. And you talked about that. You spoke about that a little bit. This idea of self-forgiveness that I'm working on as it relates to my dad, still from a historical standpoint. Forgiving others that were states have shown that it improves the, 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 the blood flow to the heart when you look at individuals who are going through anger counseling. And as they learn to embrace forgiveness, they then improve blood flow in regions of the heart that formerly were devoid of it. That we understand that love, it takes uh, gratitude. And anyone who's loved anyone, married, significant other, you understand that this is true what I'm saying, right? My, mom, my wife, I always joke around and, and say that, listen, I, I, she learned to say, to say forgive. <laughs> she forgives me an awful lot, right? And I learned I have to say thank you and express moments of gratitude. And what that does to, re, to powering, empowering you, we understand that words of affirmation, speaking positively to individuals, whether or not it's our kids, our significant others, or strangers in the, in the street, how that not only infuses them with positive uh, tones, but it also comes right back at you, that we see this. So we look at words of affirmation, we look at expressions of gratitude, expressions of forgiveness, that these things are all so important in our process. And that's what I speak to and talk really about how these things really can alleviate stress, perceived stress, but also what they, the power that they have to actually mend a broken heart, lowering blood pressure, helping to improve one's drive towards eating healthfully and, and doing the things and embracing community. And so there's so much power there, uh, Chuck, when we kind of look at the component of love. love. I mean, that's, that's what's lacking in our society. That's what we need, this expressions of empathy and forgiveness and understanding. And these things help bring a sense of peace to us and help us to kind of move forward. Absolutely. Such a powerful word, especially, you know, this month of February yeah, uh, being, right. being Heart Health Month. I mean, there's just so many ways you can look at that. But at the end of the day, I think that if you are truly trying to take care of yourself and help others, you know, that can really stem from no other place than from love and compassion, you know, for that person, for yourself. Uh, and I, I just, I love the way that you, you wrote that into the book and I, I applaud your vulnerabilities, man. It takes a real man to drop the L word, uh, doc. <laughs> it takes a real man to drop that. Um, and I love it because, you know, the principles, as you write in the book, the principles of selfish are to promote healing in your mind and body to allow you to live a healthy life and a life with purpose. I mean, like it, there's just no, no greater statement than that. And I think that that fits you to a T. And clearly, there are a lot of people who need to hear this message. Because as you and I talked about before the interview, I mean, the American Heart Association just out with this data, 51% of us don't even realize that heart disease is the number one killer. And it's been that way forever and a day. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is there is no greater time than this time for your book. That's right. That's right. I believe it to be the case, you know, and it's just the, the, the rising amount of information, but still the lack of knowledge that persists. It's important to kind of refine this down. Any of us can search these things out, but when we understand and begin the process, not just knowing, but applying it. And the funny part is this, so I'm just like everybody else. I get stressed. I have my moments and everything else that I'm not my, my I'm not my best version of myself in the instances. And I never forget kind of as I was writing the book and re and and editing uh, portions of it. You know, I was driving to work and I told my wife, called my wife, I was like, man, this stuff works. She's like, what are you talking about? I was like, no, I started doing some of the stuff that I'm writing about in the book and the research or whatever else. She was like, Yeah, you do it all the time. I was like, no, but I was feeling stressed and I really started doing some of the stuff as it relates to, to breathing and the, and the stuff about forgiveness and, and the reflection and so forth. And I feel better. 
And she was like, I hope so if you're writing a book. <laughs> but yeah. you know, it's it's um <laughs> it's powerful. It's power, it's powerful stuff. And it's written from a perspective, as you mentioned, from some of my life experiences with myself. It's written from the perspective of really a conglomerate of patients I characterize into one and her journey um, through many issues and in transitioning over because I've had the good fortune of what I'm doing since I've started on this, this vein of, of interacting with a number of different individuals and hopefully helping them to, to live a better life and a life of purpose. And so that comes together inside the book, along with some research and some other uh, historical uh, facts that are there to hopefully round out. But I don't end it there. I, I end it with kind of how we can really move towards this improved state of health in a practical way. Because I don't want you to feel as if this is an ivory tower, that this idea of health is just reserved to certain segments of the population or that it's only delivered by people wearing a white jacket, calling themselves doctors or of some sort, that this is something that's attainable to all of us, to all of us. It is an inalienable right that we all should have and we do have as being humans on this earth. Man, I can't, I can't wait for this book. So uh, you can pre-order your copy right now. There's a link in the show description and in the episode notes, or you can hop over to drbatiste.com to pre-order your book today. And I'll tell you what I would love to do is as we get closer to the release of the book, I would love to bring you back on the show. We'll do a whole live heart health Q&A and really coach people up, inspire them, dive a little bit deeper into selfish and really get those heart health IQs as high as possible. You up for that? Love it. Love it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Right. Let's get selfish. Let's let's get selfish. Absolutely. Um, and also, uh, unselfishly, I think that it would be in everybody's best interest to, if you're in the Huntsville, Alabama area, to link up with you at the Health Equity and Lifestyle Project Conference, the HELP Conference, that will be March 24th through the 26th. It is a who's who of cardiologists, heart health experts at that conference. Tell us a little bit about that, Dr. Batiste. Yeah, no, it's something that I'm excited about, right? So I, I mentioned multiple times that health is something that we all deserve and is across the board, irrespective of your gender, your age, your ethnicity, that we all de deserve uh, achieving health. And so we're bringing together a group of experts. And and uh, Chuck, you mentioned it, right? So everyone from Kim Williams to ba and Baxter Montgomery, we, everyone from uh, Milton Mills is going to be there, Dr. Helen Stoddard-Powell. We have Dean and Aisha Scherzai who are coming on board too as well. And so I'm looking for a robust discussion on the state of health and how the role of lifestyle in everything from maternal infant mortality with David Bowman all the way cardiovascular diabetes and Alzheimer's and mental health there on the, the tail end. That's on uh, really the 25th. And on the 26th, this is the time I'm probably most excited about. It's really what is the role of the community in building the health, the role of hospitals, the role of places of faith, irrespective, synagogues or Protestant faith or, or, or mosques. What's the role of, of businesses? in enriching and building the health of the community because we all have a responsibility. I'll tell you, Chuck, my nonprofit that I helped co-found and I volunteer for Healthy Heart Nation, we actually engaged and partnered with um, uh, an insurance company out in California to deliver blood pressure screenings and nutritional education inside of barbershops, beauty salons, and churches. This partnership now is reaching people where they're comfortable, where they have this sense. And this is the direction that I believe that if we're going to transform the health in the, in the United States, it's going to require this relationship between community-based organizations, along with healthcare industries, to really move the needle forward. By doing that and letting people know there is a better way through nutrition, bringing screening to them, that we can transform lives. And so that's what I'm looking to accomplish inside this, this uh, conference is that we're going to each take home actionable items that we're gonna be inspired by each other. The old adage, iron sharpens iron. This is what I'm looking to, happens, uh, to happen during the HELP conference. So definitely come check out the HELP conference. Wonderful, delicious, whole food, plant-based um, uh, 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 me meals are gonna be provided. Continuing medical education and continuing educational units are provided. Um, Dr. Scott Stoll and his team, many of you know from Plantrition Project, are co-collaborating and are heavily engaged in this. And Scott will be there and all the crew. So we're looking forward to seeing you there. 
Oh, man, that sounds like an absolute blast. And uh, send me a little bit of that cauliflower rice that you were talking about earlier. I'm not sure if that's going to be on the menu, but if it is, send a little bit up my way, my man. <laughs> got you. I got you. You're a good dude. Oh, man, can't wait to have you back on. Congratulations uh, on the book. Can't wait for it to drop. Selfish, a cardiologist guide to healing a broken heart. Pre-order your copy today, drpatisse.com, or that link right down there in the show description and in the episode notes. Dr. Columbus Batiste, thank you, my man. Appreciate you. That is my guy right there, Dr. Columbus Batiste. Always a joy to have him on the show. And you know, we touched on this a little bit, but it just, it blows my mind that more than half of us do not realize that heart disease is the number one leading cause of death. It is the leading killer. And it also happens to be perhaps of all the deadly chronic diseases, the most preventable. Isn't that something? But we have so much more still to go. Carly Bodrug from Plant U is up next as our healthy train chugs along. But first, let me tell you about the revolution that is coming. The Power Foods Revolution. And it is brought to you by this very podcast, The Exam Room. And it's all going down March 26th in Washington, D.C. You can join me and Dr. Neil Barnard along with Chef Dustin Harder, the incredible weight loss success that is Stephanie Ignafo. We are all getting together at the National Press Club along with hundreds of other exam roomies. And everyone is getting together to celebrate the release of Dr. Barnard's new book, The Power Foods Diet. And with every ticket purchase comes a copy of the book. So everyone that night is going home with their very own copy. And tickets are on sale right now at pcrm.org events, or you can click the link right now in the episode notes. I promise you this, it is going to be a night filled with laughs and learning and inspiration, and you will learn the breakthrough plan that you have been waiting for to trap and tame and burn calories for easy and permanent weight loss. So pcrm.org events or click the link in the episode notes to get your tickets today. All right, let's keep the healthy train rolling down the tracks. Carly Bodrug from Plant U has climbed aboard, and she also happens to have a book coming out. So many good ones on the way. Plant U, Scrappy Cooking, the cookbook is Carly's latest, and she's here today with 5-4, a fun way to give you five things for a healthier life. And this time, Carly has five ways for saving money eating a plant-based diet. You can be healthier physically and financially. It is indeed a win-win if there ever was one. Carly, thanks for being back here. Thanks for having me, Chuck. I'm so excited to talk about that money, money, as you put it. Dollar dollar bills. Let's get into it. What are the five for saving money when it comes to what it is we're eating? Yeah. So number one is to buy in bulk and there's no better way to do this than on a plant-based diet. I'm a huge fan of Costco. You can purchase staple items such as your grains, legumes, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds in bulk. This is going to have a little bit of sticker shock at first, but it saves you a lot of money over time. Number two is if you live in a nice climate, this, this is more towards you, but seasonal and local produce. So if you focus on buying fruits and vegetables that are in season and locally growing, usually the price tag is associated lower with those. Seasonal produce tends to be more affordable and fresher. You can also visit farmers markets to get the freshest food and hopefully the most affordable. Number three, meal planning and batch cooking. This is might be the top tip on here. If you plan your meals for the week and create a shopping list based on that, you're going to save big money. This helps prevent impulse buying. And if you batch cook, so if you meal prep meals, make a huge stew that you're going to have for lunch for the week, pre-portion that out. It's going to save you a lot of money, especially if you're someone who tends to hit the drive through at lunch, uh, opt for a homemade meal instead, and you'll see your bank account going up. Number four, 
if you are just going plant-based, it's important to explore affordable protein sources. So one mistake I see from a health perspective and a money perspective, a lot of people make when they pursue a plant-based diet is buying a lot of processed meat replacements. And you really, you don't need them at all to thrive on a plant-based diet. I would suggest keeping those as treats because things like tofu, beans, lentils, those are really tempeh, really great whole food plant-based protein sources that are significantly more affordable and just happen to be healthier. Number five, DIY snacks and convenience foods. So I'm guilty of this. I'll buy like one of those pre-popped um, popcorn bags and they're so expensive. You can make your own healthy popcorn at home. Same goes for granola bars, granola, all of these different snacks. If you make them yourself rather than buying pre-packaged at the store, you're going to save a lot of money. True fact. Uh, I'm as guilty as the next guy of buying those big bags of popcorn that are pre-popped. But then uh, I also invested $20 and got a uh, microwave popcorn popper and got some kernels. So it. it was a $20 for that plus about $10 for a five pound bag of kernels. And so I think that it's kind of like what you were talking about buying in bulk. So I just spent $30 essentially on popcorn. Well, you know, a, a big bag of the pre-pop stuff can be upwards of five, maybe even $6, depending on where it is that you buy it and the kind that you get. So really you're talking about getting about 50 bags, I would assume, uh, for the price of maybe five or six. So to me, it, it just makes sense that way. And, uh, Fresh popcorn is always a little bit tastier, is it not? Way better, way better. Love that fresh popped pop feel. Oh, it's so good. It's so good once it hits your lips, and it's and it's nice and warm. I mean, like fresh out of the microwave. Forget about it. It's so good. Uh, and I love the seasonable, uh, uh, the seasonable, the seasonal and local produce as well. Farmers markets always the hit. Um, and during the winter time, though, is it um, acceptable to maybe load up on frozen produce as well? That can always be a little bit uh, of a cost saving help there too, right? Absolutely. That should have been a tip, actually. Frozen pro produce is amazing because it's usually harvested and frozen. It's frozen right after harvest. So what that means is oftentimes it actually has more nutrients than the fresh food if you live in a climate where the food is being shipped really far. So freezing your own food or buying frozen is an amazing tip that you should not feel guilty about for eating really nutrient dense food. And here's an amazing tip for you, my friend. Plant Use Scrappy Cooking comes out on April 2nd. Pre-order your copy now. This is filled with 140 plant-based zero-waste recipes that are good for you, your wallet, and the planet. It is a home run, no doubt. Carly Bodrug, you have done it again, my friend. Thanks so much for being here and doing a little 5-4 with us. Thanks so much, Chuck. There is the link to pick up your copy of Plant You Scrappy Cooking in the episode notes. Such great tips today in 5-4 from Carly. The love of money, the love of saving, and the bottom line for your bottom line is that you can get healthy and save money at the same time. So to recap here, talking about buying in bulk, buying seasonal or local produce, so if you've got a farmer's market, that's huge, but meal plan, no matter where you are, this was her third tip, meal plan and then cook in batches. That can be clutch for saving on your grocery bills. And then look for affordable protein sources. And then DIY snacks, don't always get the prepackaged stuff. DIY, do it yourself and save. Let's go Carly Bodrug, plant you. Coming strong with 5-4. And there are more 5-4 tips coming from Carly in the near future. So hopefully, also, I'll be sitting down to do a full episode with her when I will be in Toronto very, very soon because there's so much more to discuss. I love me some Carly. Love me some Carly. She's gonna be at the Planted Expo in Toronto toward the end of March. I'm gonna be there too, along with Dr. Michael Greger. You can head over to plantedlife.com for all of those details. I'm actually also gonna be recording an episode of the exam room with Dr. Greger while we are in Toronto. So plantedlife.com, you can come to that recording. That one's open to the public. Just gotta get your tickets and you can get those at plantedlife.com and grab all the details for an extraordinary plant-based weekend, all full of health. 
And one final thing here today is that if you have not already done this, please head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is that you get your shows. Look for the exam room by the Physicians Committee and leave a five-star rating. Subscribe to the show, follow it. And then in the review box, go ahead, tell us a little bit about how this show has impacted your own health or how a plant-based diet has helped to improve your health. Because I guarantee that when you do that, you leave that five-star rating, you give the subscription, you give the follow, you are truly helping to raise not just your health IQ, but the health IQ of so many others around the world and to make the world a healthier place. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to my friends, Dr. Columbus Batiste and Carly Bodrug for being here and raising all of our health IQs. I feel like we learned a lot today. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. Plant-based.